Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Tuesday, April 19, 2010, and our special guest today is David Shank, the author of The Genius in All of Us. David, thanks so much for being here. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Steve. Really appreciate it. For those of you who are noticing that I'm a little muffled, I am calling in through my cell phone today. I apologize. I'm having some kind of a microphone problem. Uh, let me know in the chat if it gets bad enough that we have to let David talk the whole time. Coming up on the Future of Education, a very special show tomorrow midday, 3 p.m. Eastern, uh, 12 noon Pacific time, live from the Middle East. We'll have educators from Tunisia, Egypt, Morocco, and Jordan uh, coming on live to talk to us about uh, school collaborations with students and educators who are in countries undergoing um, significant upheaval should be a lot of fun. I apologize. This is as loud as I'm going to be. Um, on Thursday, Barry Schwartz talks about his book, The Paradox of Choice. Next week, Hugh McGuire, who is the creator of LibriVox, will come on. If you don't know LibriVox, I highly recommend looking it up. An online audio, crowdsourced audio for books that are in the public domain. And then a special event with Pam Moran and Iris Call on Wednesday, and Dale Stevens on Uncollege next Thursday. Um, if you've missed the show, they are all recorded, and we did have a great conversation last week with Jerry Mintz about democratic schooling before that Carl Speak on personal brands, Bernadine Porter on a future search as a technology, Rick Hess on education reform. You can see a long list. Hopefully there's something there that's of interest to you. If this is your first time in Illuminate, it is a participative environment. You have an opportunity to raise your hand, to clap, to smile. Look at the bottom of your participant box and look for the clapping hand. I'm clapping right now. I'm giving a smiley face. The larger hand with the green up arrow is how you would raise your hand. And when we go to Q&A, we'll, we'll give you the chance to do that. Or you can put your questions in the chat. Right now, I would recommend that you go up to View Layouts. Switch yourself to the Wide Layout. It makes it much easier to see um, the chat as it goes along. Otherwise, it seems quite small on the screen. And we're going to give you your first chance to now participate. Look to the left of the map for the wand, the laser pointer, or the star, the wand with the red star at the end. Click on that, and then click on the map, and it lets us know where you're participating from. Feel free to put your place, weather, time in the chat as well. That's a lot of fun. There we go. Australia, New Zealand. I was worried we were going to be all North America tonight. Somewhere in northern Africa or Europe. I can see some typing going on, so please let us know where you're participating from. And if you're listening to the recording, again, we're sure glad that you've taken time. I think it you'll you will be very glad you did so after we talk to David tonight. So David, you have the, the paperback edition of the book has come out. And I noticed that there's a new uh, subtitle, um, and I'm wondering if uh, the response to the book has been what you might have hoped it would be. Um, the response has been pretty much what um, <clears throat> what I expected and hoped. Um, that is, 
I expected that I would have a fair amount of pushback from uh, people who have been hearing all their lives about the deterministic nature of genes and have kind of built into their way of thinking um, that, that, that there's, you know, that's, that traits do come uh, directly or at least in part directly from genes. And uh, I knew that challenging that would, would, uh, would raise the hackles of some people. So that was the expected part. And then in terms of the hoping, I hope that I would, uh, you know, start to generate an interesting conversation about how we can uh, talk about all this stuff in a more developmental way. And I, I, I said start a conversation. That's not really right because a lot of people have come before me but um, mostly in the science world, but there, there have been some books and articles for the public that have uh, been kind of in the same realm, and I'm, I'm just hoping I can be, you know, a part of a conversation, which I think is going to take, frankly, a whole generation to uh, help bring, um, you know, bring the culture around to talking about things in a, in a more developmental way and recognizing that, uh, that all sorts of pieces of intelligence and any sort of uh, thing that we call talent, any skill at all, is really a, much more a matter of process than it is uh, a thing that we are, uh, that we are given by our, our, our genes at birth. So for me, the book was groundbreaking. Although it's tempting to lean on the science, I actually think it was more the compelling logic of the book that will stay with me than the science. Um, are, are, do you understand what I mean by that? And um, has anybody else expressed that to you? I think I do, but I'd love to hear you articulate that a, a little bit more because I'd, I'd love to hear what, what you mean by that. Well, for me, it was the sort of continued breaking down of kind of the cultural narratives we tell about people who have achieved excellence. And consistently through the book, kind of one at a time, looking at those specific examples, um, going into some detail and showing how this was not, in fact, a case of someone being born with talent, but an incredible amount of time and energy put into an activity where they developed significant skill. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it just turns out, th thank you, first of all, thanks for that very nice compliment. Um, it, it just turns out that, uh, and the reason for the book is that there are all these different pieces of science now that, to me at least, are clearly pointing in the same direction toward this developmental model of, of understanding how individual people become, you know, who they are. And um, and then it turns out that when you look at the achievements, at the lives of, of great achievers and the achievements themselves, and you and you look really closely, you kind of bust through all the, the, the myths and the, and the headlines and the cliches and the, the narratives that we tell ourselves, you know, on TV, um, you look really closely at how people achieve great or even, you know, even uh, not so great things, you know, even mildly good things, um, you can see that it's a process, that, that all of this stuff is a process. And I should jump in right away for people who haven't read the book. Um, they're going to hear me talking like this, and they're going to think that I'm denying the influence of genes. But that's really not what I'm doing. The, the, it's, a, it's a new way of understanding 
how genes and genetic differences influence um, our intelligence and our and our talent, and it and it recognizes that we all do have genetic differences, and those genes do matter. It's just that we can't uh, we don't get a certain amount of stuff from a certain amount of gene, and each uh, gene doesn't. Uh, it, it, you can have the same genes for intelligence in two different people, and you're not going to get the same results because uh, it turns out that the products of genes depend very much on an interaction with the environment. Um, so bear with me if you if you hear me arguing against genes and you think that I'm saying that it's all nurture and no nature. That's 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 actually not my argument. I'm I'm actually arguing that we need to. I'm trying to articulate that we can actually get past the whole nature versus nurture paradigm, and we can come up with a new way to think about this. So I appreciate that, and, and I'm we are going to kind of talk through the book. Um, but before we do so, I wanted to, to ask a, uh, another couple of quick questions. You're not alone in addressing some of these themes. Um, there's the talent code. Talent um, is overrated. There's the um, Malcolm Gladwell material. Is, is some of this coming to the cultural forefront because the, the internet kind of changes our sense of what's possible for the individual, um, and, and in some ways is changing also the um, sort of the narrative around institutions and conformity. Are we are we ready for this message in some way? Uh, in addition to the science, have we sort of culturally gotten to a place where we're ready to hear this message of individual uh, capability? What a very interesting question. I, I had not thought of that before. Um, I mean, the, the, con the conventional answer is that all of these books, all of, all the ones you mentioned, I admire, by the way, and I'm I'm just you know very proud to be among them. Um, and and I and I think that it's nice that um, while on one level you know a writer no <laughs> no writer wants you know to have other writers in their space they want to own a space for themselves but that's just kind of the first instinct. It's when when you actually take a step back and you look at what these books do and how they complement each other, it's actually really nice how they're they're all kind of talking about the same thing but doing it in slightly different ways. And I, and I like to think they're complementary. Um, but to your question, I think I mean to me, I've only thought about it in more conventional terms, which is that we have just kind of finally had these different pieces of science come along and expressed in such a way that certain journalists and and other writers who are paying attention to it can um, can can start to make sense of this stuff and and try to articulate it for the general public. In terms of uh, how receptive we are to the message, I, I'm sure that you're right that there are some things going on culturally, and the internet must have something to do with it. But I haven't really thought that through about exactly why that is that we're receptive to this message. If we are, in fact, I mean, you know, I, I'm. It, 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 I, all I know for, for, for sure is that we're not 100% receptive because um, there are an awful lot of people who, who um, push back against uh, this message. But, um, but to the extent that a lot of people are being receptive to it, I'm sure that it has you know, something to do with the culture. I just haven't put my finger on what exactly. Well, so I'm going to push the boundaries just one bit more before we dive into the book and kind of ask a related question that might shed some light on that. The old narrative of talent being inborn 
relatively few being in a position to achieve it. Uh, who did that narrative serve well? Um, was that a good narrative for a culture in which there wasn't a lot of opportunity? Um, I suppose that you could make that argument. I'm obviously going down a track that's not where you were going. So we, we'll move on. No, no, I, no I, I, thought, I, I thought you were going to add to that. I mean, I guess the way I would, I, I mean, one thought that comes to mind is that, you know, um, yes, can, you know, can, culture is changing, conditions are changing in all sorts of ways. There, I, I think that you're saying that there are all sorts of, that, that, that there are more opportunities for more people now, perhaps, because of some of these technologies or because of other cultural changes. I suppose that's true. On the other hand, um, you know, uh, uh, an argument against that that whole idea is that, um, you know, we live in a world, and I think we will always live in a world where a lot of people are disappointed with their lives, and they just don't do so well uh, for for a variety of reasons. Um, a lot of the, a lot of it has to do with limited resources early in their lives and they can't they don't get the educational opportunities and and other opportunities they don't have the the economic resources to get you know the get into great schools and things like that uh, live in areas where the schools are good all, all you know things like that um, but in any case you know just an awful lot of people historically and and currently and I'm sure this will be the case for the future um, are just dis are disappointed in their lives, and they I think psychologically they want a, a an easy way to understand why that is, and um, the narrative of the gene you know the genetic innate intelligent thing you know whether you have the right stuff or not, uh, whether you have a, a high IQ or not you know it's being kind of a matter of genetic luck uh, that you that you got the the high IQ genes and low IQ genes. Um, that is a really, really attractive metaphor. Um, and I don't think it's going to lose its power for quite some time. Uh, it, 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 it's so easy to latch onto for people who want to understand why they haven't done so well in their lives and just say, this is not my fault. It's nothing I could have done. It's nothing I could have changed. Now, I actually think that most of the people who don't do very well can find plenty of things to blame. I'm not trying to take all that away from them. I just think it's it's actually a much more complex story. And when you when you uh, when you look at the truth of it, but but um, but the the genetic you know the gene determinant uh, uh, narrative is just so so simple and easy and attractive in that way. And I think it's going to continue to be very compelling. Well, good. I, I'm going to suggest, and we'll we can come back to it at the end, that the, the old narrative particularly suits a model in which uh, teachers and others give us information and we are relatively passive, um, in part because it's less work um, and, it, and it doesn't require that we kind of extend ourselves when uh, helping other people reach their potential. But let's dive into the book and we'll come back and see if that continues to resonate. So in the first of many sacred cows that you dismember uh, is the story of Ted Williams. And, and I think you, you use it at the beginning and the end of the book because it's so powerful. Are you willing to tell that briefly? Um, sure. 
Um, Ted Williams is a great story. I said earlier that you know the science, to me, the science, all the different pieces of science are all pointing in the same direction, and that also when you look at individual achievers, it's the same thing. So what I do in the book, in addition to talking about a lot of science, hopefully in a in a, in a very accessible way, um, I also dive into the lives of some really extraordinary achievers uh, that many of us, are, some of them are still alive, and and hopefully many of us will remember the ones who aren't alive. Uh, and Ted Williams is just a great example of someone who uh, is quite uh, arguably the best hitter that ever lived. Uh, just a, a superb, superb uh, baseball player, particularly hitting. And in his time, uh, was just widely regarded as and talked about all the time as having these natural born gifts that gave him the ability to uh, hit the way he did. And he was said to have had uh, extraordinary eyesight and you know, laser-like eyesight and all these things that made it, it made it easy for, for the public to understand why they you know, could pick up a baseball bat and, and, and if they were lucky, even you know, touch the ball, whereas this other guy, Ted Williams, could pick up a baseball bat and knock it out of the, knock it out of the park. Um, and it turns out when you look at the life of Ted Williams, what you see is a process of a guy who, at about four or five years old, decided that he wanted to be the best baseball hitter that ever lived, which a lot of probably four or five-year-olds decide for a few minutes, but most of them then go on to something else, you know, five minutes later. And he stuck with it for whatever reason and spent literally, and this is, I, I, tr I try to be very careful about using the word literally, but literally every waking moment of this guy's life from age four or five was spent uh, and focused and <laughs> uh, a concerted effort at becoming the best baseball hitter that ever lived. And that sounds like an incredible cliche and an overreaction, a, 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 a crazy you know, generalization and, and uh, an extreme statement. But then you look at the details, and the details actually back up that statement. Um, so some of the examples are he, he was very, very poor when he grew up. And he would take his lunch money, and instead of eating lunch, he would give the money to his friends and pay them to go out in the outfield and shag balls so that in a given hour uh, at the baseball park, uh, you know, this is an eight or nine-year-old. He could just sit there at the plate and just hit and hit and hit and hit and hit instead of, you know, hitting, you know, whatever it is. It would be 10 balls an hour because he'd have to run and get the balls. He'd hit, you know, 200 balls an hour. Um, he didn't play any other sports. He would just play baseball. Uh, through the other seasons when everyone else was playing something else, he would keep playing baseball. He wore an eye patch uh, over different eyes. He refused to date women because he didn't want to be distracted. He literally just every single waking moment was in this park uh, um, until the lights, uh, the city turned the lights out hitting, and then he would go home and he would then bat in his uh, in his bedroom with uh, with you know rolled up newspapers and. And that's just the beginning of the story. There's just a, it, it just goes on and on. It gets more and more extreme uh, in, in the details. Um, so I, I don't think you want me to go on for, for much longer than that. But that's, that is the beginning of the story of Ted Williams' greatness. Well, and, and through the book, you do the same kind of in-depth look at uh, Yo-Yo Ma and Mozart and uh, Michael Jordan I'm sure I'm missing somebody, but sort of consistently through the book you show that some of these individuals that we kind of tell the story of they're having a natural gift, 
have actually worked really, really hard. And the Michael Jordan one was particularly fun because I think you tell he he doesn't make the varsity basketball team maybe as a junior in high school, and then there's just this consistent uh, telling of stories about him about how hard he worked from that point on. Yeah, Michael Jordan is maybe the single best example of uh, of 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 this whole idea of, of process and 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 how um, perseverance can um, take a certain shape and can come at a certain time in your life. And it doesn't certainly doesn't have to be um, you know when you're born or or very early on. In Michael Jordan's case, it did, as you say, come during high school. And there was a particular point where um, apparently because of him. Uh, not making the varsity basketball team, he rather suddenly developed this new attitude toward failure. And the attitude was um, he wanted to uh, he wanted to push himself to way past his ability every single day so that he would get better every single day. And this is a theme that emerges in the book is that you learn that the people who have achieved extraordinary amounts, a success in their lives are able at some point in their lives to figure out that failure is not something to run away from. It's actually something to embrace. Failure is an insight into a skill you haven't yet developed. And if you learn, of course, it doesn't feel good even to people who learn that lesson. It still stings. But the difference is that you can, you can really essentially divide the world up into two kinds of people in this regard. The people who experience failure and just are so bruised by it and the reaction is, well, that's a revelation of something I can't do very well. It doesn't feel very good, so I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to move on to something that feels easier to me. And then there's the other kind of people that, that um, experience some kind of disappointment or failure in something. And, of course, it, again, it, it does sting, but the reaction is, oh, okay, so that's something I can't do. Why is that? What was, that? what was it that I specifically couldn't do just now that made me fail at that task? And... What can I do to learn that, that particular skill? So essentially, these are people who are every day pushing themselves to fail on purpose, pushing themselves beyond their current ability and developing uh, on purpose these, uh, you know, working on these skills that they don't yet have. And that's how they just get better and better and better and better every, every time they are, are practicing it, whatever their endeavor is. So we have had Carol Dweck on the show, and, and for those of you who are making that connection, um, you might want to look back, and, and, and we did a similar interview with Carol. Um, it's so funny to me because I grew up on Stanford campus, and so Professor Michelle, I think I grew up with his daughter, the Marshmallow Experiments, and I went to a junior <laughs> high school, the Lewis M. Terman Junior High, and I, I just I had to laugh at that. Um, but this is where you bring in, so the next chapter you bring in sort of the genes. And again, I'll, I'll express to you my own personal response to this, which was this bolstered the case for me, but, it, but I didn't need the gene science behind it to, to really feel the power. I was already feeling the power of the message. And it really hit me when you told the story of the study of the Japanese children, same generation, some raised in California, some raised in Japan, and the difference in their height. So let me allow you to kind of springboard into the G times E uh, and, and talk a little bit about the, the science. Uh, right. So I, I've, I've touched on this a couple of times. And I don't want to spend too much time on it because it can get overwhelming and can gobble up all the time. But the, the essential um, 
message here is that we have all been taught all our lives essentially that genes are blueprints, um, that the genes have information that um, are that inside you know little tiny genes there's information that um, specifically spells out what trait uh, we're going to have or or even a, or or maybe a range of traits. Um, and uh, so it's this Mendelian model of, of genes. This, this, uh, we, were all, we all were taught you know, early on in school that Gregor Mendel uh, had done these pea plant experiments and he, and he was able to produce these predictable um, traits by mating different pea plants, you know, the, the different colored peas and the different shaped um, you know, plants and things like that. And, and what he learned, although he actually wasn't using the word gene then, what he learned from that was that the genes had the information for what, for, for what these traits would be. And that from, that, from that time on, that was for an entire century really, was how we were all taught to think about genes. The genes had the information, the specific information, like a blueprint, for what a trait should be. Well, it turns out that genes do have information, and that, that information does get translated into traits. But there is a there's an interactive process along the way, um, and that instead of thinking of genes as blueprints that have specific information for what color your eyes are going to be, or how tall you're going to be, or uh, how musical you're going to be, or any traits that, that you have, um, genes are more like knobs and switches that get turned on and off and up and down, and uh, they get turned on and off and up and down by uh, other genes and also by um, anything in the environment, ranging from hormones. Uh, I mean, it all ends up being internal, of course, but anything can affect this envir these environmental triggers. Uh, so it can be the air you breathe, the food you eat, the, the thoughts you have, the stress you have. Absolutely anything in, in, in your life um, can be a, a part of the environmental triggers, which turn genes on and off and up and down. Therefore. Um, you could have two clones uh, of each other with exactly the same genes, and um, what they're going to turn out to be, whether they're people or pigs or, or whatever, is actually going to—they're uh, they're definitely going to be very different, um, depending on how different their environments are, and um, and all of the traits are really going to depend on that interaction between genes and the and the environment. Now. Um, that doesn't mean that genes don't matter. Obviously, if uh, there are genes that um, all of our gene, all our genetic differences are going to uh, number one guarantee that we're going to be a, a unique individual. If I've got different genes from you, right, right there, I'm guaranteed to be different from you. But the important lesson here is um, is that it's impossible to say how smart I'm going to be, how tall I'm going to be even what color my eyes are from looking at my genes. All of these things are actually determined, some sooner than other, like eye colors obviously determined early on. Uh, but every single trait that, that evolves in our life, and especially the, the, the complex, the very complex traits like personality and intelligence and, and other talents that we have, all these things unfold over time and are influenced by genes, but in an interactive way where uh, our environment is very much uh, turning on and off and up and down these genes. And when you understand that concept, which has actually been around in science now for a couple of decades, but hasn't, just hasn't been very well articulated by scientists, 
when you understand that new way of, of uh, genetic action, then you instantly understand that we need to get past this idea of genetic giftedness or in, innate traits, that something, someone could have an innate uh, this or that, meaning that they're just born with it, that it's just built into their genes. Uh, because the genes themselves don't actually do anything on their own. They actually require interaction with the environment to, uh, to develop traits. So that's, that's probably as far as I should go uh, for now. And that's, that's, to me, it was important in the book to lay down that genetic framework in the first chapter before we move on to other aspects of, uh, of science. Right, so in addition to kind of dismembering sacred cow stories that we tell about individuals, you also focus on sort of a larger stories um, that, are, that, that we tell as well, um, like um, a talent in specific ethnic groups or talent in specific uh, parts of the world. Um, so more than just the individuals, sort of even larger stories that we tell that relate to talent. Um, and you move us into seeing talent or intelligence as a process rather than a thing. So can I can we use that to then springboard next to that, I mean, your next chapter is called Intelligence as a Process, Not a Thing? Um, sure. So, and I may lump talent and intelligence together here. So um, I, I love what you just said because it's important that, you know, part of, you know, I, I was just talking about environment. Well. Part of environment is actually culture. So there are all sorts of things um, that um, in our lives that influence us that are big, much bigger than our individual lives or our family lives or uh, or the, you know the food we eat as individuals or the, or the particular air we breathe. There are ideas in the culture. There are values. There are um, you know there are ways of dressing. There are sports that are you know that are that are favored and sports that aren't favored. There are I mean, all sorts of academic values, obviously. All of these things go into, um, go into this interactive process, go into, into this developmental process. So, you know, whereas in the old genetic way of thinking, the old innate way of thinking, we'd look at an ethnic group that happens to produce a certain amount of uh, um, athletic talent, um, and it could be an ethnic group, it could be a geographic group, it could be an ethnic geographic group, it could be anything, the, the, the point is the same. Um, we, you know, in the old way of thinking, we'd look at, at a certain group and say, wow, they turn out a lot of amazing basketball players, or wow, that group turns out a lot of amazing tennis players, or wow, that other group over there turns out a lot of amazing musicians. They must have the basketball or, <laughs> or te tennis or, or music gene, or obviously, you know, the, the people could make a more subtle distinction of that, but they must have the gene for, you know, for, for strong arms and, and oh, that, look at that group is amazing sprinters. Well, that must be built into their gene. Look, they must have similar genes since they all have come from the same tribe. So that's kind of the old way to understand it because we had this very easy uh, uh, genetic innate explanation. Well, you blow that up and you realize that, um, that actually it's the, it's the environmental similarities that are driving this, this developmental process in a certain tribe or ethnic group or geographic area more than the, more than the genetic similarities. 
And uh, although, the, again, it's, you know, the, the genetic similarities are, are also going to have something to do with this, but you see that it's a process that's going on that very much involves uh, these these cultural values and all these cultural um, all all these cultural pieces. I think I just walked away from your from your question. You asked me to outline oh. the, the, that, that this one particular chapter, but um, let me stop there, and you can jump in. Well, you, I don't need to, you don't need to feel that you need to go through each chapter, but I was sort of trying to get us to the next place. And at, at this point, I got very interested in uh, Binet and Terman, and kind of thinking about why would we be so quick to accept uh, Terman's particular take on intelligence uh, versus Binet's. And, and again, I'm, I'm coming at this from sort of the cultural perspective of what what in our culture would, would drive us to, to adopt that, and, and also the fact that I went to Lewis Terman Junior High School. So um, there's Binet, there's the creator of the SAT, there are several people who kind of recognize that these measures of intelligence are not actually what they're being purported to be. But why did Terman and, and others um, move in this direction of this belief that this was a number you could actually define somebody with? You know, that is a great question. And um, you'll know from the book, I didn't really get too too far into the why. I was, I was <laughs> it was a big enough job for me to report just that they did and try to kind of, you know, buzz through the history without getting bogged down in it. But um, I, I, and, and I tended to think about it as kind of it just being this very, um, this very convenient answer, which did fit into the, the way they understood uh, science in the time. But obviously, you're correct that it, it fit, it, it clearly fit a cultural milieu, and it also probably fit some very particular uh, agendas of, you know, of, the, of these people. Um, and I, I guess I guess part of the reason I didn't get too far into the why in the book is I didn't want to spend a lot of time becoming you know a cynic about individual agendas, but I'm sure if you dug hard enough you could you could find it. But um, but it it is uh, amazing how um, you know Denet, who really invented the, the IQ test in in France before it was brought over to the states, his whole way of thinking was that intelligence was a series of skills that people develop over time. And he wanted to invent this test uh, to help um, take a snapshot of where people were at, at a certain point in time and to figure out what their, their skill deficits were so that teachers could work on those skill deficits. And, um, and that was exactly right. That is what intelligence is. It's a collection of skills. And certain skills, you, you know, you, you learn better than others and faster uh, or, or slower than others. And, um, and that's what we need to do is, as educators is, is monitor kids, see what skills they're learning, modulate the, the challenges for them, pick, you know, uh, test them, and, and in other ways um, observe them for deficits and work particularly hard on overcoming those deficits. Um, and you know it's just amazing that Binet had that vision of it uh, in the in the 19th century. And then what happened was uh, that there were some a number of people who essentially appropriated that test and really uh, brought it to the United States and 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 made the IQ very popular in a completely different way and kind of subsumed it under this idea of 
uh, under this ideology, really, of, of, of each person having a certain amount of intelligence that they were born with, and these tests were useful in determining what their what that level was, you know, so what their IQ was, and boy, did that idea take hold, obviously, uh, since we're still stuck with it, and there probably isn't, you know, you could throw a dart on the street, and, and it's going to hit a person who's going to tell you that they have a certain, they either know or they don't know their IQ, but they have a certain idea of having a certain IQ, you know, which is their, you know, inborn intelligence. And that's just that's just not what intelligence is. And it's like as I said at the very beginning of our talk, it's going to take I think a whole generation to unwind that uh, that myth that we've been uh, that we've been that very oppressive myth that we've been living under for several generations now. And, and I'm curious, and, and um, this, this isn't a question; it's just sort of a comment. And we can maybe get to as we get to the Q and A. I almost wonder if it isn't kind of a, a um, one of those cognitive things that we're going to discover that we do in order to simplify and that it may persist forever. And so then we get to this interesting place of how do we tell stories or narratives to counter that. And, and for me, the book takes this really interesting turn because you go into ways of thinking about how you would raise uh, help a child and ways of thinking about how you foster a culture of intelligence. And, and then again, that word comes up, this, this sense of culture. So if we've got a couple of minutes before we go to Q&A. In the book, you list many things that you think that we could do to sculpt the culture uh, around us. Do you think we actually could do that? Are we able to consciously make changes in our culture, or do we depend too much on larger narratives, mythology, uh, sacred stories uh, to kind of guide us? Could we actually intellectually identify that this is important and find ways to implement it? Is that possible, do you think? I'm hoping you say yes. Well, let me, let me first uh, answer the premise of your question. I, I entirely agree with you that, you know, this, that, this, that it is very, very important to focus on, on, um, on this idea of complexity versus simplicity and, and finding very, very simple ways, compelling simple, narrative-based, metaphor-based ways of explaining uh, and understanding this new paradigm. Because you can never win. If you're, having a, if you're having a war of paradigms, and one is something as simple and beautiful as the gene, which has the stuff, you know, and the other is this incredibly complex story about RNA, you know, and RNA being affected by uh, hormones and, you know, this crazy long story which you have to have a PhD to understand, um, obviously you're never going to win that battle. So what we need to do is, and this is something I, I focused on a lot in the book and I'm very, very interested in um, now, kind of post-book, is, is thinking a, a lot about metaphors and, and stories and, and, uh, and words that we, you know, just simple words and phrases that we either shouldn't be using anymore and or should, should be adopting, words that already exist in the language that we can reappropriate. Um, to answer the, the, the real question that you asked, can we do it? I think that, um, I, well, I think that turning, you know, changing culture is like, you know, the biggest, I think the, the metaphor that comes to mind is we're in a very, very large sea vessel and you're trying to turn it, you know, in a, in a, in a totally different direction. We're trying to turn it 90 or 180 degrees. Um, and, you know, 
it's a very, very difficult process. It's going to take a lot of effort. It's going to take a lot of cleverness. It's going to take a lot of people. So I think of it, I think, in, in a couple of different ways. One is it's just a big conversation, and the more people that are involved in that conversation uh, over the long, you know, the, over more time, the, you know, it gathers, the, the better off we're all going to be, the more effective we're all going to be. And then, as you suggested, I, and I agree entirely, it's a matter of as many of us as possible being very careful with the words we choose and the stories we tell and being, uh, there's going to be a lot of creative creativity that's necessary in coming up with new, our own new stories and, and myths and, and narratives which will help um, not only kids but adults understand this stuff in a very, very simple and compelling way. So, you know, the, the, one little example of that, the one I worked very hard on, I've already mentioned, which is trying to help people understand genes and, and tell them, you know, throw away this idea of a blueprint and, and instead think of a, of a mixing board uh, of all these knobs and buttons. And when I give a talk, I actually show a picture of a, of a blueprint and say, all right, we're getting rid of that and we're saying, you know, I show a picture of this big giant sound mixing board with all the knobs and the buttons and I say, and this is really how we think about genes. So, um, you know, some people might like that metaphor, some people might think it's dumb, but um, I think the point is this is all a, a process and that we, we do need to think a lot in this direction about words, phrases, phrases, metaphors, uh, and stories. I think what part of what makes that so interesting to me is that it, it demands simplicity at one level and complexity at the next. So whatever those stories are, they have to, they have to allow or even kind of shepherd you toward the complexity, um, which I think your book does really, really well. So we're going to move to Q&A uh, with, with me paying you that compliment, which is I felt as though the book succeeded on several levels for me, uh, both in terms of the narrative and in terms of the science and the complexity. So um, let's go ahead and take your questions. I really apologize given the fact that I'm on my cell phone and um, my laptop tonight, I haven't tracked well the questions in the chat. So if you've asked a question in the chat and I missed it, I hope that you will repost it. You can also ask David a question by raising your hand. You do this using the larger hand and up arrow icon that's at the bottom of the participant box. And you can um, raise your hand. I'll give you the microphone to ask the question. While we're waiting for the first question, we'll answer Bernadette's. Well, maybe Bernadette's is the first question. How do we get a hold of the book? Certainly, you can go to your local library, probably. Um, Amazon.com is not a bad way. Good book. Boo! Library, boo! <laughs> you don't want to say that in this audience. But, but I, we all understand the motivation. Um, uh, well, uh, uh, again, no, so, I love libraries. Uh, please feel free. That's funny. Um, so please feel free to ask a question. Uh, Ed says, uh, what do you think of the, oh, okay, here we go, because I didn't bring this up at all. What do you think of the identical yeah. twin studies that conclude the opposite, the genes are the determinant? Um, okay, yeah, this is a good question, and thank you for asking it. And um, Steve knows there's a whole chapter on this in the book, and it's very, very difficult to, to, to deal with in in a, in a short amount of time. Um, so I'll, I'll try to just give, you know, like a, a, a three or four minute answer, uh, which is going to sound so woefully incomplete, uh, and, and just refer you to either the book or other stuff that, you know, that you'll find online. 
Um, the the twin studies are uh, there is obviously a large body now of, of research of, of comparing twins. And the, the first thing you need to do is uh, is realize that what you have what, what we have all heard about twin studies is really a combination of uh, the science that's being reported, which I'm going to criticize in a second, and the anecdotes that are being reported. And the anecdotes are really badly, badly skewed. And it turns out that when you chase down the anecdotes, they're not anything, uh, you know, they're not anything consistent with, with the story that we've been told. So an example of that is, yes, Oprah will have on the triplets that have never seen each other, supposedly, and they turn out to have all these similarities. But when journalists actually round up uh, uh, separated uh, uh, twins or triplets that have been separated at birth, first of all, they weren't really separated at birth. That's another story. But um, there are just as many that you can find that have these enormous differences. They never get any airtime. They never get talked about. They never, you know. So there are reasons, uh, some coincidence and some cultural reasons why we have these amazing uh, anecdotes um, of twins who have supposedly never met each other and turn out to have all these similarities. And it goes further than that, but let me shelve that. Now, under the science, and I, I'll try to do this very quickly, um, the, the, um, the science of, of twin studies uh, has done something very, very useful for us. And they've proved one thing beyond a shadow of a doubt, and that is they have proved that genes influence virtually every trait, that, that in a, not virtually, every single trait that we have. So anything from the color of our eyes to how intelligent we are, to how, uh, to what our personality is. There is genetic influence in all these things. There's no question about that. And they can do that mathematically. They can compare uh, the similarities of uh, detectable similarities of identical twins to the detectable similarities of fraternal twins. And they can do a mathematical thing. And they can show without a shadow of doubt that, that there are genetic influences going on there. In terms of coming up with numbers that show a percentage of, of, of a certain trait that is determined by a gene, um, that is, um, I'll try to put it kindly here, uh, completely bogus. Because, um, because it's a mathematical phantom. Um, you, can't, you can't say that a gene is a certain, what they're doing is they're showing that, that genes are, uh, res are responsible in a population through this mathematical uh, derivation for a certain percentage of these trait similarities that they are detecting. But um, genes don't work that way. Genes don't determine a certain percentage of anything on their own. On their own, genes actually determine zero, just like on their own, the environment determines zero. So to try to separate out those influences actually just turns out to be bogus. And I, if you don't trust me on that, I wouldn't uh, blame you. But I'm just actually being the mouthpiece for a number of really, really smart scientists, including Patrick Bateson in the UK, who has taken apart these heritability studies and exposed them for what they are. And which is not to say that they're a fraud. They have done some very valuable things, as I said earlier. But they are taken way too far, and they are dramatically misinterpreted in the popular press. And I should probably stop, stop there. But just let me repeat, as I said at the beginning, there's a lot more to the subject. And, um, and um, it's just very, very sad 
that to me that um, the science has been really badly misinterpreted, and an awful lot of very good journalists have have not taken a very close look at the at the story and uh, and and articulated it very well uh, to date. But I think that is going to change. And I'll interject here that this may again be kind of a reflection of um, sometimes how we look for the sort of the simple, the easy story. You give the examples in the book of this really this one particular example that's so compelling and seems so newsworthy, and yet you know several others or, or have read of several others where the producers got certainly down the line on that story and said, you know, this, there really isn't the same connection, but they're not going to run a story on the fact that there isn't a connection. They're going to run the one story where the, the connections are there. Well Tom said. Says, I think you did that in about 12 seconds. <laughs> Tom says, as a teacher, will reading the book give me insight into helping my students bring out their own genius? Uh, will reading the book, uh, could you just repeat it and let me listen to the words one more time? Oh, what Tom is asking is if he were to read the book, will it give him insight into helping his students bring out their own genius? Well, I certainly hope so. I mean, I need to say, I, I, um, anyone who's read the book knows that I, I virtually do not use the word genius inside the book. Genius is a way to attract attention, and it's, a, it's obviously a, a very loaded word, but it, it's a stand-in for high levels of talent uh, and, and intelligence. Um, I like to avoid the idea of, of genius in the book. I like to talk about just high achievement or just you know, success doing well in, in whatever domain you're interested in. Um, and there, I think there are whole new ways to understand that now, which you know we've been talking about for nearly an hour. And, and there's there's lots of different lenses uh, on on that. There's the genetic lens. There's the brain plasticity lens. There's the there's uh, the the cultural lens. And all of these things are pointing to a new way of thinking about not, about that. And I think that when you embrace that paradigm and you talk in that way. Um, just just talking about it in in this in in uh, in, in a new uh, in a new paradigm actually uh, is I think makes a dramatic change and actually I don't think that I know that that's actually the substance of Carol Dweck's work is when she took students and she explained intelligence in two different ways to two different groups of kids she found that the kids who were told that intelligence intelligence is innate is a gift that they have and they have a certain amount of it and they can't really do anything about that. Those kids are not as ambitious and they're not as successful uh, following that, that message. Whereas the kids who understand intelligence as a series of skills that they have to work hard to develop uh, and that, the, that their level of intelligence is really up to them and, and also their, their teachers uh, and, and, and how, how much they want to achieve, that group of students ends up taking that paradigm of intelligence and becoming more ambitious and more successful academically. So uh, it's, a, it's a proven uh, it's a proven paradigm at this point. I think it's I think it's uh, bound to improve um, any classroom. <laughs> We're getting some great questions here that are going to that are all kind of bleed together. Um, in the book, you do a really good job, I think, of um, making it clear that this isn't about doing whatever it takes to make your child uh, the most talented in the world, um, and that in fact. You're not really in control as a parent or a teacher. 
you're, you're looking to play an influential role, but you're not in control. So I'll give you a couple of the questions, and I think we can they can be answered in one fell swoop. Uh, David asks, is genius a form of unbalance? I mean, that is playing the piano, Mozart, or painting Picasso, so that you turn out skewed human beings. And then Craig asks about, uh, he, he mentions a, a lecture called Good Enough Parenting, uh, and then talks about Tiger Mom. So you're not advocating that everybody drop everything and create a yo-yo ma family circumstance from age three months, right? Exactly right. Um, and I think the way to think about it, I mean, I, I love the way you just put that. I, I think the, the, the points to be made are, number one, this is absolutely not in our individual control completely. I do think that embracing this new paradigm and thinking about it in this new way does give us slightly more control because, um, because it recognizes that, that all this stuff is a process and we can, the more we understand the process, the more we can influence it. Uh, it's, 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 that's not even remotely the same thing as saying that we're ever completely in control of the process. And we've already talked this hour about how cultural is, culture is a, huge, uh, is a huge variable here. Obviously, no individual controls any, you know, any aspect of their culture. I mean, there's a family culture, there's a community culture, there's a national culture, there's all sorts of levels of culture that, that are completely beyond all of our control inter uh, as individuals. Uh, and, and just to reiterate, the, the other point that you made, which I completely agree with, is that um, we, uh, yes, the book is not advocating, uh, although you look at the title and you, and you kind of compare it to other self-help books, you think, oh, this is another book saying that everyone can be extraordinary genius and that's the goal of humanity. That's, uh, it couldn't be the farthest, you know, from the, the truth of my agenda. I'm actually trying to help people understand the extreme things that people do need to do and the extreme sacrifices that people make to uh, achieve these very, very high levels of, in their domain, in their particular domain, and to help people understand that that is a choice that these people are making and that I personally respect whatever choice people make as individuals. Uh, as a parent I, and as an individual, I chose, have chosen not to make the most extreme choices for me and, and for my kids. Um, I prefer balance. Um, but I'm not going to criticize the choice that Michael Jordan made, or, or, uh, or, um, or you know, or, or Mozart, because um, they do absolutely extraordinary work by choosing to live their entire lives around, you know, this one domain and give up virtually everything else. It's um, and, and of course, you know, what they do is a gift to the world. I mean, geniuses give us great ideas and and, and great creations. So. Um, but, but I think the more we understand it as a choice, uh, the, just the, the bottom line is the better off we all are. I'm going to introduce something here, which I think you've just described, and, and maybe have verbalized elsewhere, or maybe not. But for me, the distinction you just made was very interesting, and that's the difference between uh, what you call in the book the Britney Spears syndrome, or the parent who pushes their child to a place where later on in life, they have no interest in really being there anymore versus this kind of generative or uh, recursive or open sense in which you're teaching the principal and supporting and engaging and allowing the individual to make the choice as to where to do that and being very encouraging of it. Do you think that's a fair distinction? Yeah, I think that's really, really important. Um, 
I, you know, I think that the, I mean, the Britney Spears syndrome in particular refers to this idea that I think it's actually not hard for a parent if they, if, if, if all they care about is, as parents is creating children who are extraordinary at a certain thing as early as possible in their lives. It's actually not very hard to do. All you need to do is, uh, is use uh, your love and approval as currency and say to the child in so many ways, you, I will not love you and I will not approve of you unless you do this third certain thing and you just keep doing better and better at it. Because kids will absolutely respond to that and they will become extraordinary at, at what you need them to, to become at. The problem is that you're creating an emotional, um, uh, forgive the metaphor here, tsunami that is going to come to uh, to haunt these uh, these individuals as they uh, as they mature. Um, so that's that's a disaster. Uh, it's a, a nice instant recipe for for prodigy that turns out in every case to to, to be a disaster. Uh, and as you said, I, I think it's just so important for uh, you know the the other side of that is trying to give your kids the tools, the internal tools to make the decisions on their own about how, what kind of sacrifices they want to make in their life, about how much time and effort they want to put in anything, into something, to give them a sense of possibility that they can be great, to give them a sense of how to respond to failure and how a certain response to failure does lead to success over time. Uh, but, but, but to let that stay, you know, in their, to, to let them come up with their own dreams uh, and aspirations, and and hopefully they'll have the tools to to make those dreams and aspirations uh, turn out the way they want them to. Jill says in the chat, it starts with treasuring, not measuring. There's a long conversation in there about education and uh, the educational system as it relates to this, and I think it's a it's a great ongoing conversation. Uh, David, I'm clapping for you now. We've reached the top of the hour. I, I want to, you know, I really appreciate it. You are a great example of this, these very principles. At one point in the book, you indicate that uh, if you took all the time you spent on the book, it would turn out to be eight words per hour. Uh, so it shows. You've taken time with the book. Uh, you've, um, you've done a very good job of becoming competent, excellent at what you do and in communicating, and I really appreciate it. I thought the book was uh, brilliant and, and in some ways life-changing for me, both as a parent and as someone interested in education. Um, uh, we do have a commitment to letting you go right at the top of the hour. So again, uh, thanks so much for being here. But was there anything that we didn't talk about that you wanted to make sure you mentioned? Um, well, I, I just want to say a couple of thank yous. I mean, first of all, I I love anyone who heaps that much praise on me. So I, I, I that's that's really really generous. <laughs> but in addition to that, um, I just I really really appreciate your. Uh, I mean, I, I love the insight of your comments. Sounds like I'm sucking up, but I'm really not. I just love the insight of your of your comments and questions along the way. It was really it was fun for me to listen to, and um, and I I am uh, committed to um, you know to to continue this conversation in in all sorts of different ways. I'm working with some scientists on how to continue this you know this hopefully the beginning of this conversation of, of helping people understand the science in, in, in a new way. Uh, and, and I hope that that also, that same thing also happens with educators. I've had a, a number of really, really wonderful conversations and this being uh, one of them. And I hope that, um, you know, in, 
in some small way I'm able to to keep adding to that conversation. And I hope that it um, you know that we can all work together to um, you know to to um, to make this paradigm uh, the the accepted one over the next uh, let's say generation or so. Thank you, David. Uh, again, clapping and lots of praise in the chat for you. The book is The Genius in All of Us by David Schenk. Uh, this is a must-read recommendation. Uh, I hope that you do either get it at the library or at your local bookstore or Amazon.com. Again, David Schenk, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Thank you. And anyone who does get a chance to read it, please do uh, go uh, find me online. I'm easy to find at davidshank.com and send me a send me a note. And you know whether you like it or not, please let me know what what you what you think. And thanks again, Steve. I really enjoy this. Yes, I did too as well. Thank you, David. Don't forget tomorrow our special show from the Middle East. Then on Thursday, Barry Schwartz on his book, The Paradox of Choice, uh, and much more good coming up. Some some of you know that Ken Robinson's coming on again in May. I will look forward to that and many, many other really terrific uh, sessions coming up. hope you'll join us for one of them. Uh, the recordings for tonight's show will be up uh, later tonight. As I said, I am traveling, and so it takes a little bit longer than usual. But both the MP3 in the podcast stream and the full illuminate recording. And David, I'll send you a thank you note uh, privately, giving you links to those uh, recordings, and uh, hoping to stay in touch with you. I really feel like you've made a difference here. Uh, thanks. Let's keep talking. I appreciate it. Take care. Thanks. Good night. Good night, everybody. Have a great evening or day. Those of you in Australia and New Zealand, take care and bye.